Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. All right, all right. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Getting Crunked with Tech Leader. I'm get launched with Tech Leaders. Uh, my name is Adam Oberhausen. I'm the Vice President of Customer Solutions with Right Brain Networks, and I'm your host for today. Joining me today is my good friend and uh, comrade and uh, software and data consultant, Tom Kowalski. Say hi, Tom. Hello. Hey, hey. And uh, it is my honor to introduce Lancelot Carlson of House Heal Pay. Welcome again, Lance. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Uh, so today, today we're, I, this might be the last episode I do on this Agile deep dive. We'll see. There might be one more I've got on my mind where we talk about when Agile goes bad. So I feel like I've kind of ran the gauntlet here on the Agile talks, but, um, you know, a recap of what we talked about last time we met, which was Agile planning. Uh, we went through the whole process. We talked about that invest acronym when you do story planning. That means independent, negotiable, valuable, estimable, small, and testable. Um, we talked about how developers estimate stories using planning poker. We talked about how business folks rank the stories so that the developers know which ones to do on their sprints. We talked about how to avoid traps from overzealous stakeholders who try to get you to overcommit uh, when doing your iterations and uh, setting unrealistic goals. And we talked a little bit about how uh, teams actually execute on those iterations, um, checkway checkpoints, keeping track of your velocity was, was a good talk. So this time we're talking about the secrets of agile programming. And I'll start by talking about let me see if I can put it in the chat here for our audience. I always forget how to do this. But Lance, are you familiar with The Circle of Life uh, by Ron Jeffries? That sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm going to post it in the chat here for, for you and the audience and Tom, of course. But, you know, so Ron Jeffries is one of the co-creators of Extreme Programming. And, um, you know, Kent, Kent Beck of course, was a key part of extreme programming. And they came up with this circle of life diagram. And uh, if you if you look at the diagram, it, it ties into this whole agile practice that I've been deep diving into. Um, a lot of it, of course, from uh, uh, Uncle Bob, Robert Martin, as my, uh, as my inspiration for these. So when you look at this diagram, there is the, um, the outer circle, which is like the whole team. It represents like the business facing practices. And then you look at the middle circle, it represents the team oriented practices. And then the center circle are the programming practices. So, and that's what we're going to talk about today is the center circle about how the, the programming practices, you know, as prescribed by my hero, uncle Bob, Robert Martin, and those four disciplines are test driven development, refactoring, simple design, and paired programming. I recall, Tom, a time in your 
career that you were all about the extreme programming. So I'm wondering if, if you had seen this diagram or, you know, if, if heard of any of this. Uh, not this diagram, but yeah, I'm a huge fan, right? I, I know there's a lot more to it, but it's usually the, the paired programming, I'm a huge fan, mm -hmm. right? That that's a big part of the extreme programming. But yeah. Yeah. Um, there is the, uh, there's also test driven development, right? Is that part of it? Yeah, I said test-driven development, refactoring, simple design, and pair programming are the four kind of uh, programming practices that are part of this inner circle of this of this circle of life diagram. So there is some controversy, I think, in programming circles around whether or not to do TDT. I think that's like the of, of the things mentioned is the most controversial. Yeah, and, uh, and then pair programming is maybe the next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot of controversy. So yeah, you know, I drink the Kool-Aid, right? Um, I've seen the light. I think test-driven design development is is a great way to approach software development. And I'm going to try to, I'm going to say, I'm going to state my case and I want to hear what you guys think. But, you know, let's start with the, the three rules of test-driven development, which are, uh, let me pull up my notes here. Da, 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 da. The first law. No production code can be written without a first a failing unit test. The second law of test-driven development, write only enough of a test to fail, including compilation failure. Third law is write only enough production code to pass the failing test. So it seems very impractical, I think, to, to take this approach. It just sounds stupid, right? Let's just be honest. I mean, you write, you're, you're supposed to you write a you write a piece of code, you know, piece of test code. It won't compile. Um, so then you have to go to your production code and write that until that test pass. And then you you know go back and write another small piece of test code, and then it fails to compile or run. And then you just kind of keep going through the cycle over and over and over again. It seems it seems insane, but it actually aligns with a very another practice um, and a, a very important industry I'm wondering if you guys are would could think of like another another uh career or discipline where this type of approach kind of work in this a similar fashion of this like iterative loop of like always kind of you know writing test code production code you know this cycle um i'll share it with you and it's accounting mm. um you know so accounting about 500 years ago came up with the the system of double booking right and it's uh, an accounting is a, is very a lot of ways similar to this to programming there's a lot of formulas bizarre symbols exact syntax in order to do it in accounting you know they use the double entry booking and so everything that's entered goes into the asset side and then once on the liability side and then it follows a separate mathematical path and that it always equals zero um, so the, the, the analogy there is that test-driven design follows that, you know, same, a similar pattern in that, you, you know, you're writing, everything gets entered once, once on the test side, once on the production code side, um, they follow a complementary execution pathway and they wind up at zero defects. And so the, the, the idea is that, you know, every line of code is, um, has a 100% test coverage. I'll stop there and just see if you guys have any thoughts about, 
you know, Lance, you said there's some controversy around test-driven design. I'd like to hear, you know, what your thoughts are. And, you know, have, had you ever heard of that comparison with between accounting and the double booking with test-driven design development? No, I, I don't think I've heard of the, I, this is the first time I've heard about the bookkeeping analogy. It's a good one. Um, yeah. I think the controversy largely, the largest part of the controversy is centered around test-driven development when it refers to doing tests first. I don't know if there's any version of TDD that doesn't say you need to write tests first, but I think that there's a group of people that say you can, you should write tests. I, I am fully on that train, um, but there's a group of people that don't agree with having to test first. So are you, are you saying these people say they write a lot of production code and then go back and write tests? Or is it, are they just saying they write production code first or a small, a small line of production code and then a small line of, of test code? Cause that's, yeah, I, I think they don't want, well, I mean, I think the constraint, uh, is hindering some people, I guess, like people want to be able to write a bunch of production code and then be able to write the test afterwards. You know, I think as you're, as you become a more senior developer, you kind of know your design and want to kind of flesh that out first, maybe, and then, and then put the tests in afterwards to sort of make sure that you're not violating that interface that you've created. Yeah. I think what you just said there kind of hits on my experience and it, it depends on what your program right? If you have everything like established and you're just adding, you know, a, a feature to a pattern that you already know, right? It's a little bit easier, but most of the stuff I do when I'm programming, I don't know what it even is or, you know, what these objects are, you know, to even, to even think about what the test case is. And that's, that's kind of where I have issues with this right mm -hmm. and and you said too like unit testing and i don't agree that everything needs to be unit tested so i think that's mm -hmm. that's kind of the issue where you know if you're just doing sometimes with translations but uh a, a lot of times yeah there's you're just adding something that unless there's business logic that you're doing and sometimes you don't even know what those objects are that are used in that business logic so um, those are kind of the issues that I've, I've had in, in dealing with that. So, yeah. But I do yeah. think that when you're a junior developer, just starting to learn these things, it is useful for you to run through the exercise of trying to test everything first, because you understand, then, then you really understand, like when someone says, oh, I think I'm writing useless unit tests. Like you can actually clarify that distinctly because you know when you've written useless unit tests <laughs> yeah um it's something i wanted to follow up with tom uh, with both of you i think you know you said like sometimes you're writing code and you don't even know like what the objects will be right to me as someone who like i said believes the dogma now you start with the like okay this object is null like it doesn't even exist right like you you the, your test starts with like you know can you instantiate the object you know, as you add methods and properties to that object, you you know, there's a little, there's a little line of test code for each of those little things you add to those objects. So I think you start with like the, you know, as you 
and then there's a lot of refactoring involved in this whole process, right? So like you're, you're con- and that's our next topic that I want to transition to is, is the refactoring part. It's interesting because I've been doing, I've had, I have a lot of interest in sort of, uh, writing stories for, for movies, um, script writing, and it's kind of interesting. And, you know, in that you kind of also have to look at story writing and regular books. And it's kind of interesting to compare and contrast the the experience of writing a story from the characters first, the individual characters, versus trying to compile the story first, and then sort of create characters from that. And so it's like, when you don't know what you're building for, and you're exploring, sometimes starting from the characters first can actually be bad, because you don't know it's it can be difficult to stitch things together and i and my comparison here is like objects right when you're in and classes sometimes like you you're kind of creating classes in this lower level of abstraction lower than you should be and you're writing tests for it and then you realize you have to throw it all away later because that wasn't the correct abstraction and you know you should have just been prototyping yeah 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 sell us here adam <laughs> okay, so all right, here's the, here's the statement. Okay, so if test-driven development, if you follow that, it allows you to quickly and easily refactor your code without fear. If you look at a team that starts a greenfield project, right? Say they're starting something brand new, and let's say in this example they're not using test-driven development. So as at, at the beginning of the project, they're going to go really really fast and get a lot of stuff done, but as time passes, they slow down and they keep slowing down to nearly a crawl because the code gets messier and messier and worse and worse and more tangled. And, you know, they don't know all the, all the, you know, dependencies and, you know, maybe even if it's written cleanly, it's just like they, that, that, that the challenge it takes to refactor basically prevents the team can prevent the team from moving forward. Whereas if you start with a good test driven development, the discipline and, it allows you your team to maintain that same level of velocity because there should be no fear in in rewriting your code because you should always be refactoring you know refactoring sh- should be happening with every iteration of your test driven development it's not something you don't put like refactoring on your project roadmap like oh let's refactor this you know this system you know it it should be part of your your daily 5 minute cycle of of test driven development so yeah, I mean, there you go. And if you want to be able to maintain your velocity and have no fear of changing your code, I mean, I think about some of the systems we developed at my, our previous job, Tom, and it's just like, you know, there was just a lot of, there was really no test-driven, there was really no unit test in a in majority of the code base. And so it became really difficult to to change code without understanding its uh, its impacts. Yeah, it, it's just also hard too because usually when you're refactoring, it's like a, a different way of doing it, right? A different object done differently, right? And the, the tests don't uh, co- coincide anymore, right? Like I'm now moving this logic over here and it's like, well, now that the test doesn't even, I can't even run that test the same way anymore. Um, I always feel like whenever I do test driven, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll start off with, you know, here's some assumptions and the, the test. And then as I'm making changes, sure, it breaks the test, but then it's like, 
I just need, I just keep refactoring the test just to match it. And it's like, I'm doing double the work for most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And really the, the, the thing you're striving for is to build a system that is easy to change. Yes. Software versus hardware. Hardware right. is, is yeah, it's, it's mutable, uh, or immutable software is by its definition of its name soft. It should be easy to change. So a couple of other analogies I came across is just when it comes to refactoring and, you know, you might get feedback from, from stakeholders or your manager that we don't have time to refactor or this or that, you know, I just like think about an author who writes a book, Tom, like you think an author starts at page one and just writes all the way through to page 300 and then the book's done. Right. No, I'd imagine there's like, there's this iteration and refactoring as they develop characters and figure out where to insert, you know, other things into the story. Um, the same thing with scientific research papers, a composer who writes a symphony, um, you know, they're not just writing note by note perfectly. There's, there's always, there's a refactor. It's a sign of good work. And I know you're not saying that you're against refactoring. I'm not trying to imply that, but there's all these other analogies in almost anything that you would classify as good or interesting work. Refactoring is, is a big piece of, of, of what people do in almost every discipline. So, um, as, as developers, I think it's important that, oh yeah. Okay. So, yep. Oh, well, so you, you refactored some production code. Yep. You got to refactor the tests accordingly. It's all worth it in the end. Yeah. There's an interesting concept of like tracer bullet development, uh, which is, I like to, in this case, my analogy is going to be some script writing, actually, uh, they start from the end of the story. So they're like, how do I want this story to end? first <laughs> and what's the cognitive effect i'm trying to achieve so you could kind of do the same thing with programming where it's like well this is the end result i want um maybe you even create some sort of integration test and then you can build the code towards that assuming you know that's the intended result at the end of it actually i'm a huge fan of integration tests when when you do know what you need to do okay yeah, so that's my take on refactoring. And that leads us to the next piece of the uh, circle of life, inner circle there, and that's simple design. Again, this can be a controversial aspect of agile development. And I learned about a new acronym called YAGNI. Anyone ever hear this? <laughs> YAGNI, Y-A-G-N-I. You, are, you aren't going to need it. Yes. So this is the idea of putting in hooks or scaffolding for future ideas or future features and it's a bad idea and the reason it's a bad idea is because of Kent Beck's four rules of simple design and again like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid so here here they are Kent Beck you know he was very much involved in uh, all these players I like to talk about Agile Manifesto XP Extreme Programming worked a lot with the uh, Robert Martin on things as well. So the four rules of simple design are the code, code that passes all of its tests, code that reveals its intention, code that has no duplication, and code that contains the fewest number of elements. So when you look at rule number one, code that passes all of its, te its tests, it seems like it, Im it implies that you have to be doing test-driven development. If you're not, you're, you're, you kind of have like these barely baked test suites that, you know, could pass on a rainy day and you don't really know 
the state of your code. So in order for your, it, the rule as it's stated is that, you know, in order for you, in order for your design to be simple, it has to pass all the tests and has to be proven that it works as intended. So uh, my brain is really kind of struggling on something. It's just like yeah. an internal conflict. Uh, this Yagni versus dry. There's like a, for me as a programmer, this, this comes up all the time where it's like, I'm developing a feature and I'm doing well with it, but then I'm having to consider the fact that this feature is going to look a lot like another thing that I need to do. And so do I create an abstraction now or do I wait until I'm developing for to support that other thing as well? And that is... Those are, those things are always in conflict, I think, for developers. And, for, and a specific example that came up more recently uh, was that I wanted to support um, synchronization of GitHub and GitLab um, commits. And so I've started with GitHub, and that code is now working for GitHub, but now I have to support GitLab, and how much of that translates over. Turns out, not a lot as far as the actual integration code, the adapter code. But, you know, the abstraction, there's there's a layer there that could be abstracted, but do I need to do that now? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So that hops to the, the last rule of simple design, where the code, the current code should contain the fewest number of elements. So if you're following this by the book, you would say, no, you shouldn't, because you, Yagni says, you know, that we want to, we don't want to add things in, in, in anticipation of future code mm -hmm. because that makes the current code not as small as possible. But I will say, if, the, if you're adding hooks or scaffolding for future features because you fear that your code is going to get too complicated down the road, that's when you're doing it wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. if, you're, if, it's, if you're starting out the project and it's like, oh, well, I just know it's going to get really complicated three months from now to add this in later... So we want to add add in the scaffolding now. That is that's the no no for me. That's when you should say no, Paul deceased. Don't no do not proceed with this with this line of mentality. And whereas, you whereas your that case, that? whereas your case, Lance, like I don't know. I think there's always gray area with some of these rules. Well, and then there's I guess it's like the timing of deployment, right? So if you're being forced to deploy uh, this feature, you know half of it. And then you know you're going to have to support the second half of this feature later. You know, it's going to be a pain in the butt to migrate your database to the other version. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. It, it, like, yeah, there's a lot of trade-offs. You know, it's the the it depends. I, I think that's what helps to to have the you know who's ever working on this to be as as close to the problem and problems <laughs> going forward as possible to be able to make that decision uh and then to also be conscious of it you know don't don't always try to you know do not repeat yourself or or, or any of those like don't treat them as dogma right you but keep them in the back of your mind as okay should i be abstracting this now i, I think it's always good to think about it but, yeah, mm -hmm. don't always jump to yeah you know, the over abstraction in the beginning um, but it's always good to at least think about it um, for, you know, I, I like to say that the 10% of your time thinking about what that future is, because it might, it, you don't want to get hung up on it, 
but you could really shoot yourself in the foot um, by making some decisions up front that you could have saved a lot of time down the road. So I, I always say you got to at least think about it. Um, but yeah, don't, don't over abstract that one rule that I, I like to do is even if I'm writing it twice, right? I still don't really abstract, but it's like the third or fourth time is when I think, okay, that's because even when you do that second time, you still don't know, you know, there, there, there's things that could still be the the same between them, but yeah, it's that third, fourth time. It's like, okay, yeah, now it's time to, uh, abstract this. It's a rule that I can mm-hmm. use. I think that's where this 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 conflict with test test first development comes into play because I think that when you're doing test first development you're encouraged to create unit tests and develop at that lower level of abstraction when really you should be thinking at a little higher level of abstraction and and at the lower level of if abstraction if you're stuck there you're sort of thinking about all the different ways that this small little class could be uh you know useful in different contexts when you know yagni right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's a good point yeah it's like it's like the sometimes these rules can conflict with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> um so when we talk about simple design we're not talking about stupid design so what that means is the attribute of simplicity um does not mean that we're talking about code that's simple to write right because writing Simple design can actually be, it can be very hard to write code that follows these rules. Um, so I think it's just, you know, in the research for the show, it was like, oh, well, if I just follow these rules, I don't need to think about architecture or design. I just need to follow these rules and everything will be great. And it's like, no, that's not it at all. Like, you you know, simple design is actually very challenging to adhere to. Um, and when we talk about simple design, we're talking about code that's, testable it's understandable it's as simple as we can make it and it's small it's as small as we can make it so it's kind of my final thoughts on the whole simple design and the big thing that you hit on on uh lance is simple design implies that it's easy to change at a future (laughs) date when it when it needs to be changed so um you know there's one thing that's true about software is that it's Software cannot be done correctly. It cannot be written correctly, but you can correct it. <laughs> okay. So simple um, design is also not simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, a lot of paradoxes and everything, everything we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the last uh, pillar of this inner circle is the paired programming. So, some might say this is the most un- misunderstood of, of disciplines. And um, just to give a little explainer of what it is, pair programming is the practice of two people working together to write a single stream of code. Uh, they can work together on a line-by-line basis, character by character. You can work at a single workstation where you share uh, a screen, keyboard, and mouse, or you can work, uh, there's like single workstation with dual controls, um, you can do independent workstations with screen sharing over remote. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that technology can help facilitate this. But the big point is that you've got two developers interacting with each other second by second on individual lines of codes. So you're ba- they're basically co-authors of the code being produced. So 
start with a question. Why would we even want to do paired programming in the first place? Anybody? Lots of good reasons. What are they? Information sharing is a big one. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> That's right. That's the most important one, in my opinion, because any, if you use the sports team analogy, if, if a player goes down, you need the other players to be able to pick up the slack. So that whole knowledge sharing and domain sharing um, makes it so your agile team is more well-rounded. People understand all the components of the, of the, of the application. Um, you're breaking down those knowledge silos. So yes, I would say that is by far the biggest reason to do paired programming. Yeah, I, I think in terms of information, you should have as much as you can asynchronous. But with, with the paired programming, there's that that little bit that you just you don't think about, right? And you 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 wouldn't unless you were paired programming, and expect, and not just the you know what the app is. Right and and how it's working, but more of the how to work on it. Right, the the tools is the, is the biggest thing mm-hmm. that I I love when when working with somebody else and seeing how they interact. Uh, you know, moving screen to screen or you know the the different tools, different uh things like that is yeah is a big one in the knowledge sharing, not just so much the app but the process. Yeah, you know, opponents, yeah. people that maybe aren't pro paired programming would say, oh, it's gonna it's going to decrease productivity, right? It's going to it's going to cut the team's productivity in half, which is absurd. It's a number great one training vehicle. Exactly. My one of my first sysadmin jobs, uh, I was I thought I was pretty good at command line. I was pretty good, you know. I used Linux a lot, but when I saw my boss uh, flying through the terminal, running, you know, little hosted machines, just you know, increasing and decreasing RAM and just orchestrating the world, I was opened to a a new reality of what was possible. And I was like, I need to get there. And it only took it from there. It only took maybe three to six months, you know, and I did a lot, you know, but it, I only paired with my boss, maybe the first, you know, two weeks of my coming on board. So. Yeah. And just that little bit, just that little bit of, um, you know, guidance and inspiration from a senior person was able to kind of show you what uh, another human is capable of, right? That you may have not, you know, even known about until you saw it in in, yes. in, in real life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the other thing too, the, the conception and when people hear it is like, oh, like all of my programming, right, is, is going to be done this way. I've, I've never seen that, right? Where it's, yeah, every single line by line is always written by, by paired programming. It's usually lit up right certain percentage or you know if you're working on something new or whatever but i don't know is there like a prescriptive guideline that you've seen adam it has to be this this much or yeah so uh great question tom so agile teams who pair and uh mature agile teams always pair will pair maybe 50 percent of the time um as a good baseline it can be lower or higher um it says in my notes, in my research, that if you're if you're at tw- if you're doing if you're pairing twenty percent of the time, it's probably a little too low um, to get the knowledge share you need. But I think fifty percent, and they should be they should be pretty short sessions, like one or two hours tops. Couple Pomodoros if you're using Pomodoro technique, that, which is a great technique to do paired programming. And I wanted to circle back to what you said, Tom, about the benefit of paired programming is not that you go 
faster, right? You know, t- typing your programming words is not the bottleneck when you're when you're programming, right? It's your mind. Your mind is the bottleneck. So when you bring another mind into that process, uh, you know, I'll just throw out the metaphor. You know, two minds are better than one, right? So like that's where you're. That's where you see the benefit. There's actually some data around paired programming, and uh, these the statistics are very interesting, and I'll, I'll share them with you. So some studies have shown that paired programming suggests that a paired programmers will suffer a 15% loss in instantaneous productivity. Instantaneous means measured over an hour as opposed to measure over a week or a month. So I don't, I don't want to dive too far into that. I'll move on to the next one. We'll circle back to it. The number of defects they produce over an hour will diminish by 15%. So that's good. I'd say it's even higher. Uh, okay. Yeah, I would say I would say it's I would have thought it would be higher. And then um, the number of lines of code they produce will diminish by fifteen percent. Um, so that's that's a good thing too. So I think you know you could look at those statistics and and think that there's a loss of productivity, but fewer lines of code means that implies a better design. Fewer defects implies a better design. If you're measuring productivity by the number of lines of code, your whole business model is wrong, um, and you need to rethink your whole life. So, yeah, yeah. just talking about simple design, yeah, yagni, yak shaving. But all statistics aside, the benefit of peer pro- paired programming is the teamwork aspect of it. Your 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 team is maturing. You've got senior developers pairing with junior developers. Um, you could have juniors pairing with juniors, but you want to you want to monitor that closely and make sure they're not driving each other off a cliff. You could have seniors pair with seniors, but uh, you know that can be you got to be careful with that too because uh, you want to make sure there's not some uh, that could lead to um, a fight about just like the right way to do something, right? Or they could they could, it could lead to bigger arguments about the whole design of the system which I thought was an interesting thing to think about, but I've never actually seen senior de- developers who are pairing, getting in like verbal altercations. I think you have other issues. Than... Yeah. 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 Um, I think you have to be very deliberate about who's driving and who's mm. passengering. And there's a lot of psychology that's built into the being a driver versus being a passenger, especially right. in the senior developer to senior developer case. You have to, you know, and that, and that kind of develops over time as you do it more and you experience different personalities, but knowing when to chime in and not interrupt someone's thought process, even, you know, they might be quiet for some reason. And you guys kind of develop a language with each other to figure out what that is and when to interrupt. It's, it's, it's an interesting psychology to think about. Yeah, are, are there any uh, statistics on that as the the driver versus passenger? I I love to be the passenger, right? I, I'm not a fast typer. Um, usually, it, you know, I, I like to pair with more senior developers, engineers, right? And and learning the 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 tricks, and you know, they they type a lot faster. Whereas that you know, I can sit back and and think about the the design more, like you know, as they're typing a lot faster. So. I tend to want to be more of the passenger at like at, at a lot higher percentage, but yeah, that, that is interesting. Do, do they say like, you know, it's better to, to switch and be, you know, or 50, 50 all the time, or is it kind of, yeah. I have no data on that. Yeah. 
I think in general, uh, trying to, I mean, it, it depends on your goal. Um, if you're the more senior person and you're trying to train the other person, uh, you might start off by being the driver in the very beginning and then, and then completely flip that around towards the end as you're yeah. making sure that your co-pilot is familiar with their environment and what they're trying to do in real time. Um, you know, when it's senior to senior, um, I, d I think more of an even split is better. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it's funny because even small things like making sure that your environments are <laughs> both set up properly for the, for that particular ticket, whether it's like your database being in the same state or whatever it is can be helpful. Um, you know, especially if you're doing a hybrid approach where you kind of go off and start programming by yourselves, uh, it can be, it could be nice to make sure that this is your checkpoint and you're both on the same page. Um, yeah. That's my experience. A lot of depends, right? Yeah. It's good to talk about this yeah. and know the different you know, ideas of, of what's good, better and, and yeah, but yeah, it's a lot of it depends. So Lance, I want to circle back to the beginning when, when you said that, you know, some polarization around test-driven development. If people aren't using test-driven development, you know, what are they doing? And then how do they, how do they keep their code so that it can be easily changed and adaptable without breaking a bunch of stuff? Well, I do think that having tests is important. Um, and having, I don't think that the measure of coverage the percentage is necessarily a metric that is accurate, but I think that having the basic business logic covered in tests should be there. And how you end up there is not as important as having it at the before you release to production and you've pushed the code to your CD, CD, CI uh, build system and have it run through the tests and make sure that you don't run into the hey, it worked in my machine issue because you want to make sure that it's working on the Docker or whatever environment that you've set up on production system as well. Um, so you're not running into issues when you do try to push this to production. Um, so general rule of thumb is we still need tests. I, I still think that at the end of the day, you want those tests, but you're not necessarily writing all those micro unit tests ahead of time and doing that pass green fail uh, system where you're in this infinite loop of, of, you know, your, your feedback loop is the tests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe your feedback loop is the design and you're just trying to write it out. I think it really depends too on like the, the language you're using, what frameworks, right? How, how well established it is. There's a lot of, a lot of frameworks or, or even languages that make it a lot easier to do this up front, right? If you have more of a functional language and Things are, you know, your business logic is almost always done in, in pure functions and you have side effects. It, it makes these uh, a lot easier to do. Or if you have frameworks that make it easier, you just, you know, here's a, like a button press and generate those failing tests for me um, can also be be useful. So, yeah, it depends. And, and just your flow and culture, right? Do you... Do you like have a team that will help you with these, right? To do like the, uh, they call it like the three amigos, right? Where you sit down and go over, uh, you know, the different actions and the different frameworks, right? The, 
the cucumber and I I don't remember all of them, right? That um, it, it, yeah, I think it depends on the the different frameworks, the language you're using, uh, what makes it easier to write the tests, how and and when they get written. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it's super important that the developers are talking to a designer or a product person as well, because you're going to get more of the information, the business logic there. If you if you screwed up the business logic, but you were writing tests, like that's 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 a failure. That's like, <laughs> I just think there's a higher level of abstraction that you should be more focused on, because if you miss that, there's no amount of tests that are covering what you did. Alrighty, well great talk today. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today to today's episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. We hope you found the conversation informative and valuable. Love to have you join us again next week where Jason Brown and expert co-hosts are going to be discussing security strategies for serverless development. Be sure to tune in because it's going to be one hell of an emotional roller coaster time. Woo! Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.